So you recently wrote a piece in the magazine about Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, who was going to be tried for treason after the Civil War and then wasn't. In an alternate universe in which Davis had been convicted, what might be different about America today? I think we would have a sense that former presidents can be tried. It can be subject to criminal prosecution. And that would put the Trump trials in a new light. That's Jill Lepore, a staff writer at The New Yorker and a historian at Harvard. Jill has written a number of pieces about the lessons that history can teach us, even about events that seem totally unprecedented, whether it be the pandemic or January 6th. Her latest essay for the magazine is about the last time the U.S. government tried to prosecute an insurrectionist ex-president. You're listening to The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett, and I'm a senior editor at The New Yorker. I mean, in your piece, you write about this, like, cloak of impunity that is draped over the American presidency. And do you think that that can sort of be traced back to this? Or, I mean, I guess, where does that where does that cloak come from? Well, it's not a constitutional cloak. Uh, as uh, the judge in the D.C. case ruled just this last week, on Friday of last week, the Trump lawyers filed a motion to dismiss the D.C. charges against Trump on the ground that as a former president, he's immune from criminal prosecution. And the judge struck that down with a really vehement 48-page ruling saying there's nothing in the text, history, or structure of the Constitution that suggests former presidents are immune from criminal prosecution. Yes, it's never happened, but that doesn't establish a precedent. So I want to talk a little bit more about the similarities between Jefferson Davis and Donald Trump. When we talk about Trump being tried in just the year that we're sort of like looking toward with all of the trials and everything, we often talk about how this whole thing is just incredibly unprecedented and weird. Um, but at the same time, I feel like your piece shows that there are at least some historic parallels with these stories. And so I'm wondering if you could um, talk just about what those parallels are and, you know, why these two stories are connected. Yeah, so I do think it is important to acknowledge it is unprecedented and weird, right? Like, this is just the weirdest time. And I, and I also think it's important to acknowledge that restraint in impeaching or indicting sitting or former presidents is is an important principle, right? Yeah. Like, we don't want to be a country where we're constantly impeaching presidents for political reasons, for partisan reasons, indicting ex-presidents as just an act of political vengeance, right? Like, th th there are lots of reasons why we should be proud as Americans of our tradition of restraint here. On the other hand, it kind of has become a trap. And, <laughs> you know, we know that, you know, Johnson was impeached. You know, there were there have been impeachment efforts against Clinton and obviously the two impeachments of Trump. We have not successfully convicted a president after an impeachment. Nixon was pardoned. So we always point to this long history of refusing to fully hold a, a president or a former president to account. We leave Jefferson Davis out of that tradition because he wasn't president of the United States. He was president of the Confederate States, but that's still half the country. <laughs> and I was just really struck by, well, what if you do consider him part of presidential history? And then things actually look a, a little bit different. It would be very easy to overstate any parallels with Donald Trump. Jefferson Davis was a longtime public servant. He served as Secretary of War and Senator from Mississippi before he was president of the Confederacy. He didn't stage an attempt to overturn an election, but 
He, in fact, led the presidency of the Confederacy during the Civil War in which 700,000 people died. So a much larger scale of essentially insurrection rebellion against the United States. Nevertheless, I think some of the issues involved in whether or not to hold him accountable for that rebellion, for the insurrection, for the secession, for treason, does give us some hints about the upcoming criminal trials involving Donald Trump. And so was this a connection that was kind of obvious to you from the outset of writing this piece? Or um, I guess I'm curious what made you look back at Davis as a potential parallel? Yeah, I actually kind of stumbled into it. Historians don't really pay a whole lot of attention to Jefferson Davis or to this treason trial that never happened. I'm working on a project, a book about the history of failed attempts to amend the Constitution. And I was writing in chronological order and I was at Reconstruction Hmm. and really struck by, we think of the just storm of amendment activity during Reconstruction, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which historians think of as the second founding of the United States, it really completely rewrote the Constitution in deeply meaningful ways, which were then abandoned when Reconstruction as a political project was abandoned. So I was thinking about those amendments, but looking at all the other proposed amendments that failed, and lots of them had to do with treason and with insurrection. And with thinking about how to prevent a civil war from happening again. And with thinking about what to do about the former Confederacy. And there's a kind of laser-like focus on one element of one of those amendments, which is Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which disqualifies essentially former Confederates from holding federal office again. But that even that one clause was part of, as is the case with any constitutional amendment, a much broader debate about what the limits would be of constitutional revision. And as you know, some months ago, two leading conservative legal scholars published an article arguing that because of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, Donald Trump is ineligible to run for president. Although there's been a lot of legal debate about that, and these cases are in state courts and expected to rise to the Supreme Court, very little of that actually really looks at Jefferson Davis, who was the really the reason for Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. So that's why it just sort of struck me as I kind of got to wondering, well, what happened? <laughs> like, I actually didn't know, right? Like, as a historian, it's always better to answer a question you don't know the answer to, which is, why did this guy never get prosecuted? Like, he led a secession that cost 700,000 lives. And he was captured and charged and fully expected to be tried for treason. And it never happened. And I didn't think the existing explanations were really satisfying. And, you know, one worries that Trump will never actually be tried either. He will delay and delay and delay. And he'll get reelected and he'll pardon himself. And there will never be a consequence for him. That's the worry. And so I was wondering, I wanted to answer the question myself, how did Davis get away with it? So before we talk more about Davis, I'm wondering if we can talk more about Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, kind of like spelling out what exactly it says. Um, It's known as the Disqualification Clause, right? Yeah. So the 14th Amendment, people are most familiar with its sterling provisions, which the Equal Protection Clause, guaranteeing the equal protection of the law to all citizens, and the Due Process Clause, due process for all persons, and birthright citizenship. Section 3, the Disqualification Clause, has been largely forgotten and very infrequently 
used for various historical reasons and some political reasons. But at the time that the 39th Congress, which was the Reconstruction Congress, was debating the 14th Amendment, they kind of had an urgent political problem, which is that, among other things, it seemed possible that Jefferson Davis would run for the Senate or run for president in 1868. And nothing on the books would actually disqualify him from assuming federal political office. In fact, four former Confederate congressmen had been elected to the 39th Congress in 1865. And when the clerk called roll, he simply didn't call their names, refused to seat them. But the Congress that did sit, one of its first orders of business is, we got we to prevent these guys who just fought a war against our country from resuming their seats in Congress or being elected to Congress. Seems so reasonable, the, yeah. Yeah, seems, right, <laughs> seems reasonable. You'd think it might also be reasonable to refuse to reelect or to seat members of Congress who supported the January 6th insurrection, but that's a related We're going to find that out, yeah. We'll, get that, we'll find that out. Um, so they, they had the task of trying to craft the proper language with which to do that. And if you go through the records of the Joint Committee on Reconstruction, some of the drafts sort of specifically said the former president and vice president of the Confederacy can never again hold federal office. In fact, the vice president of the Confederacy, Alexander Stevens, Jefferson Davis's vice president, had been elected to the Senate. Yeah. Uh, was supposed to take a Senate seat in 1866. So sort of they specifically were going to disqualify those guys, but they opted for a more general provision that anyone who had sworn an oath to the Constitution and then engaged in an insurrection against the United States would be disqualified. Precisely what the language is, was the oath to uphold the Constitution or was it an oath under the Constitution? Would they be disqualified as officers or from the office? In other words, the, 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 the precise language leaves open some legal arguments that Trump is not described as someone who is automatically disqualified. Recently, just a couple of weeks ago, a judge in Colorado determined that under any definition of insurrection and engaging in insurrection against the United States, that Trump does meet that criteria of the disqualification clause that he, in fact, as a matter of fact, did engage in an insurrection against the United States. This judge refused to disqualify him on other grounds. But this will continue to evolve as discussion continues in in the state's and ultimately, again, it's widely expected that the Supreme Court will have no choice but to step in when when it does will be important. And what is the status of these challenges now? Like, I think in your piece, you, you wrote that um, this idea of blocking Trump's name from being on the ballot, that there are challenges that have been filed in, I think, 28 states, and that I think 11 of these cases have been dismissed or withdrawn for some reason. So this is still very much an open question. And it looks like the Supreme Court's probably going to have to make the final decision on that. I mean, it's there's so many of them that it's a little bit hard to keep track. Lawfare is a is a blog that has a tracker uh, where you can track day by day what's going on with each of these challenges. You know, the, the argument that many people have made who think, well, the Constitution does in fact say this and it is, in fact, true that Donald Trump is ineligible as if he were, say, 32 years old or had been born in Canada or just because a matter of fact, he is ineligible. As a matter of actual politics, the possibility for kind of continued insurrection if courts were to keep his name off a ballot in a battleground state 
is significant. So what's really disheartening about all of this is you see just how holy I think so many of us have capitulated to the idea that the fear of political violence is influencing all manner of decisions that people make. We talked about in previous conversations that new biography of Mitt Romney in which he describes Republican members of Congress, members of the Senate, voting against impeaching Donald Trump because they were afraid of attacks on their families. Yeah. So you think about how these cases are proceeding through the states. It seems fairly clear to me that Trump is disqualified under the terms of the disqualification clause. I think people are genuinely terrified of what it would mean if the courts take Trump's name off the ballot. Terrified of of the real threat of political violence. I mean, how did similar fears play into the case that was never tried against Jefferson Davis? Like, was there a similar thing happening there? I mean, does that explain why there was never a trial or was that just a much more complicated situation? It seems like from your piece that the case would have opened up a lot of questions that people weren't really excited to have to be forced to answer. Yeah, I think that also the public interest in prosecuting Davis changed dramatically over time as people expected it to, which has also been the case with the Trump trial, right? The We're coming up on the three-year anniversary of the insurrection. How people think about holding Trump accountable for that today is doubtless different. And by the time we get to trials, it could well be four years out. So Jefferson Davis, just to remind listeners, was captured and arrested in May of 1865. And at the time, many Americans believed that he had ordered the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, which had been a devastating shock. So the initial impetus was to bring him immediately to trial for war crimes and for treason and to hang him. No other treason trials would proceed until his trial had taken place. So the effort was initially just to find evidence, to look for evidence that he'd been involved in the assassination of Lincoln. And there really was a hue and cry, a thirst for Jefferson Davis's blood. People really wanted him to hang for that. He was put in military prison. But as time went by, it became clear there wasn't evidence that he had ordered Lincoln's assassination or even that he had known about the plan. So then the case was going to have to be a treason trial. Then the war came to an end. That couldn't be a treason trial before a military commission because the war was over. So it was going to have to be a civilian trial. And the attorney general decided that would need to be in Richmond, Virginia, which was the capital of the Confederacy. And so therefore where Jefferson Davis committed the alleged crime of treason. But also where most of his supporters would have been. This is (laughs) right. And uh, none of whom were eligible to serve on a jury. So you're a white former Confederate in Virginia. You can't serve on a jury because you can't take, unless you perjure yourself, you can't take what was called the ironclad oath, which was a a loyalty oath. So where are you going to assemble a jury in Richmond, Virginia, that can actually even try the guy? And this is the first among a a, a long chain of reasons not to try him right away. Another argument was the war had been won by the Union, which had insisted that seceding from the Union was unconstitutional. The South continued to insist that secession was constitutional. And if Jefferson Davis were tried, it would be the most important trial ever held in the United States. Everybody would be watching. And his defense would argue 
that he was not guilty of treason because at the time he was the president of the Confederacy, he was no longer a citizen of the United States. Hmm. That when when Mississippi, his state, seceded from the Union in 1861, he renounced his U.S. citizenship. You can't commit treason against a foreign country. And so, therefore, that the trial would be less a public trial of Jefferson Davis than it would be a litigation of the constitutionality of secession. And that was a kind of tricky question. So the federal government was really worried that even just having him make that case, even if he were yeah. even if he were convicted, it would be just bad for the country. Like all these people had lost their sons in the war, and now they were going to have to sit and watch him have this national stage to make this case. And the similarity here is, you know, we know that Trump, in the two cases that involve his efforts to overturn the election results and from the election of 2020, the trials will give him an occasion to make the claim that he won the election. So somewhat similar reticence informs both cases. There are a whole bunch of other reasons why Davis was never tried. And the one that I really found fascinating, because partly I hadn't seen other scholars pay much attention to it, is that the Reconstruction judge in Virginia who would have sat on the case, joined at the, on the bench by the chief justice of the Supreme Court, because the Supreme Court justices used to ride circuit. That judge, whose name was John Underwood, who had been an abolitionist and who was a radical Reconstructionist, radical Republican, he determined that both the grand jury and the trial jury would need to include black freedmen. And I think this was ultimately the final reason why the treason trial of Jefferson Davis never took place. But again, there's a long, a long list of reasons, but a lot of it just has to do with the same sort of fear of ongoing political violence. You know, if we just let the guy go. I mean, Lincoln wanted him to escape to Mexico. Lincoln was, please just don't even try to catch this guy. I don't want to tell you not to try to capture him, but I think it would be really convenient if he got out of the country. That in many ways would have been the easiest thing. But given that he was captured, what are you going to do with him? If you try him and hang him, the cycle of political violence is just going to continue. We're going to take a quick break. You'll hear more from Jill Lepore on the political scene from The New Yorker in just a moment. What kind of fallout was there after people kind of realized that this trial against Davis was never actually going to happen? Um, Because we talked about, like, it seems slim at this point, but there's a chance that Trump is not tried. There's already been so many attempts to delay these trials. And it seems like, as you said, that everyone was kind of out for blood. And the fact that this trial never happened seems weird Um, that they could have just kind of gotten away with it. (laughs) Yeah, it seems weird, but the people that you might most expect to object did not. And those people are Black freedmen from the former Confederate South Mm -hmm. and uh, white Northerners who were radical Republicans. And they didn't object for different but interesting reasons. So radical Republicans had imposed by 1867 military reconstruction, They're like, okay, the only way to actually deal with this rebel part of the country is to send in the U.S. Army and have military governors rule these places because we need to enforce the 14th Amendment and not long after that, the 15th Amendment. The only way to guarantee equal rights and the civil and political rights of black men and black women would be to put the South under military rule. The legal argument for doing that was that the South had been another country and was now a conquered province. And so you could conduct essentially a military occupation of a country that you had just conquered in war. But if you tried Jefferson Davis for treason, 
then you would have to argue that the South was not a conquered country, that it had always been part of the United States, and as a U.S. citizen, he was guilty of treason. So it undermined the very effort of military reconstruction that radical Republicans were pursuing. Given that choice, they're like, you know what, let's just let this guy go. It's much more important to be able to occupy the South and you know, put down the Klan, do the things that the military was supposed to be doing. Meanwhile, for black freedmen, for black freedmen women who you see really almost like a Greek chorus in the news reports, there's not a lot of direct reporting, but like there's always like the crowd outside the courtroom was principally black men yeah. <laughs> or the crowd in the courtroom was, you know, singularly full of, of black faces or people waiting at the train station for the Supreme Court justice to arrive. It was, a, it was a crowd of black men and women who were immensely disappointed. There's not a lot of direct testimony. You certainly get the sense that these men and women really wanted justice, right? They wanted someone to be held accountable for the institution of slavery, for a war fought to defend that institution, and yet, they don't exercise a lot of objection, even if you follow the story in like black newspapers or look at the writings of leading black abolitionists and black equal rights activists like Frederick Douglass, you don't see a lot of agitation around, oh, we must try Jeff Davis, because what they really want is equal rights and freedom yeah. from, from political violence. Like, that's like, just like beyond the beyond, like, sure, justice, we would love that. But what we actually want is like, freedom from being lynched. We want to have equal rights. We're fighting for suffrage. It just was not high on the list for Friedman. I had a really interesting conversation with my colleague, Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham, a very distinguished historian. And she is the descendant of one of the men who was among the black jurors who was who was going to be impaneled to try Jefferson mm. Davis. You know, her family lore and family heritage is is about, you know, Albert Brooks was going to be on that trial. She told me this incredibly beautiful story about her great-grandmother, Lucy Good Brooks, who kept as a locket on a chain around her neck a photograph of her husband that was taken from the photograph taken of the mixed-race grand jury. But I asked her, you know, she's a specialist of this era, of, of the Civil War era and, and Reconstruction, Black Reconstruction. And she's like, yeah, it just wasn't a big priority for Black people. Like, people are trying to deal with freedom, you know, get the right to vote, protect their families, figure out a way to feed their families, rewrite state constitutions. Like, there's a lot of things people are interested in doing, but prosecuting Jefferson Davis was not going to be one of them. And I think that cynically, most Black Americans would have thought, this guy's never going to be held accountable. And it's interesting because I feel like, you know, there are a lot of um, historic parallels here, as you point out in your piece, but it seems like for the most part, the United States seems like it's in a situation where prosecuting Trump or trying him kind of is the main thing that's on a lot of people's minds. And that act seems, seems like it's connected with like a lot of larger political battles that are happening as opposed to like a sideshow. Would you agree with that or is that like too simplistic? No, I think that's probably true. And I think if there were a choice to be made, if you could be like, you know what, if we just let Trump off... We can go back to having a regular, normal, ordinary, flawed, but mostly meaningful democracy. Most Americans who really wanted to see him prosecuted be like, yeah, fine. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, you know, like really what I want is the country to, to work and be decent again. And I think a lot of people felt that way about Jefferson, <laughs> Jefferson Davis. And actually, honestly, I feel that way. I totally feel that. I, I would really rather skip the whole misery of this just what will be 
a spectacle of the political opportunism of Trump and Trumpism. It just seems so risky to me and so laden with a kind of political excess and drama that is just not good for the country. I'd love to think that one could just skip all of that. And I can imagine being someone living, you know, in 1866, 1867, thinking that way about Jeff Davis, like, yeah, it would be good to prosecute him, but geez, I mean, it's going to be such a mess. But you see with a leniency to Jefferson Davis, what it costs, it's like the first renunciation of Reconstruction. Yeah. The entire project of Reconstruction, this truly beautiful experiment in like the world's first multiracial democracy with full equal rights. That's what those amendments promise. That's even what the military occupation promises. And then like, oh, let's not bother with this guy. Let's just, it'd be easier to just let him go. Like it's just, and then a few years like, well, it'd be easier to actually just like withdraw the army and like, let, you know, whatever. So they've got the black laws. We're like, whatever, like we gave it a shot. Eh, let's go back to the way it was where, you know, all the white people can just have all the rights and black people have none. But like, at least we don't have to have more tumult. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Like there's, a, <laughs> there's this like, what? But I get, like, I get it. I get like just wanting to move through it and get to the other side. But you have to really think about at whose expense that comes. Like, what would it mean if the Justice Department had never filed those charges, the federal charges, against Trump in the D.C. case? What would it mean to have never said, you incited an armed insurrection against the U.S. government and tried to overturn the results of a legitimate election? It's going to be so messy to deal with that that we're just going to hope you go away. You know, what the consequences of that are huge. But you see with Jefferson Davis, like how people kind of talk themselves into, ah, oh, that would be so hard. You know, David Blight has this beautiful book called Race and Reunion, which is about the decades after the Civil War, after the renunciation and abandonment of Reconstruction, how white Northerners and white Southerners just agreed, be like, let's just even pretend we didn't have that war, or we had it, but it was really about states' rights and nothing to do with slavery and equal rights or race. You know, we just disagreed about this little constitutional matter, but like, now we're happy again. And what we agree about is we can continue to disenfranchise Black people. Like, that was the romance of reunion. The, yeah. The, the desire, the such a heartfelt desire to look at it in the most generous possible way, to get beyond the anguish of loss and devastation of the war, and to just throw, you know, a quarter of the country under the bus of that desire, that romance for reunion. So I don't know, that haunts me a lot when I think about wanting Trump and Trumpism to just sort of somehow vanish. Yeah, I mean, it seems like in a way the United States is finally doing the the hard thing. I mean, there are all these complicated political questions about trying an ex-president who was also in the process of running for president again. But it seems like the country really isn't in a moment where we, we could not do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not necessarily the right thing to do to defeat Trumpism. It is just the right thing to do. Yeah. You know, after sort of looking at the Jefferson Davis case and all of the issues with jury selection and just the sheer number of hurdles, you know, against getting him a fair trial, I mean, are there, do you have any thoughts about the way that we can go about these Trump trials that won't just completely destroy the country? 
I feel like it's a question that we've talked about before, like when you were on the podcast last time, like, is it even possible to fairly try Trump? Is there a way to do this where, you know, it it doesn't seem like one side is totally politically compromised to the spectators watching, the spectators being like the United States electorate? (laughs) Yeah, I do think it's going to be a god-awful mess. But I do think that the federal judiciary has been the strongest element of continuity and normalcy in holding a line against the unconstitutional behavior of the Trump administration. So I guess I do hold a lot of faith in that process. And the best possible case is that people do the hard work of explaining the nature of the prosecution and the defense and the trials become an important mechanism for Americans' faith in in institutions. But it seems highly unlikely. (laughs) I'm like speaking so slowly because I'm trying to like imagine what could be the best possible outcome here. No, I see what you're saying. Like, you know, a world in which, you know, the trials aren't this incredibly divisive. I mean, they're probably going to be divisive no matter what, but that they can in some ways be restorative. Yeah. I mean, I still, I'm still left with, there is the much larger issue. And I think in a way the trials will call our attention away from it, which is why so many Americans have such an appetite for this man and his behavior. And the trials won't answer that. That's not what they're for. That's not what they can do. And in a way, they will just exhibit it. They'll feed that appetite. You know, when Trump says, oh, I just need one more indictment and then my reelection is (laughs) insured, you know. Um, He has been very canny about using this. But I, I will say... You know, I this morning read Judge Chutkin's 48-page opinion denying the Trump motion to have the case dismissed on grounds of presidential immunity, and I found it really beautiful. There are lines in that ruling that are basic statements of what it means to live in a country where whoever we choose to be our ruler briefly then returns to the mass of the people as one among us. And that really is historically a tremendous innovation and a hugely important part of, you know, what liberals don't like to celebrate but conservatives like to invoke is the American experiment. And it was an experiment. And it still is an experiment, and I find it very heartening to to hear the clarity with which Judge Shutkin sort of invokes the, the constitutional history of that notion. And so that's where I sort of, when I think about that, like, best case, like, what does it mean, like, what would it mean in a civics class to actually have your, you know, have eighth graders read that opinion and be like, so what is, you know, yeah. read the Trump motion, read the judge's ruling, read the Trump appeal, read the judge's new ruling. Like, I think it's a really interesting opportunity to think about, like, 
wait, why do we not have a king? Um, maybe there's an opportunity for civic renewal within the way that some outlets cover the story, the way school teachers engage with this as a civics opportunity. You know, maybe instead of like a very greased, well-greased slide down into the further pit of misery, it's actually a ladder out of it. Even this idea, I mean, you write about this a bit in your piece, but just that, you know, presidents aren't above the law and that former presidents aren't above the law. I mean, that's something that I guess is true in theory, but we've never actually seen anyone test that, you know, since there's this legacy of um, impeachments not really working out and, um, and pardoning people. It seems like kind of a core element of our democracy that we've never actually done anything with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, I, and, you know, if the republic can hold while that happens, <laughs> that will have been a tremendous victory for democracy. Well, I think that's about as hopeful of a note as that we could possibly end on, given the darkness of the conversation. So I think I'll take advantage of that. Thank you so much, Jill. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Jill Lepore is a New Yorker staff writer and a professor of American history at Harvard University. You can read her essay, What Happened When the U.S. Failed to Prosecute an Insurrectionist Ex-President, in The New Yorker Now. This has been The Political Scene from The New Yorker. I'm Tyler Foggett. The show is produced by Michelle Moses with support from Sydney Cobb and Gianna Palmer. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Our theme music is by Allison Leighton Brown. Enjoy the rest of your week, and we'll see you next Wednesday.